Good morning. So a, a number of you um, have asked, I am coming back um, from a trip to Alaska. Um, the day before I took off, um, so we were, uh, my dad had actually planned the trip. He's turning 70 in, I think, a month. Um, I've just turned 40. My brother's 32, I think. And so we'd been planning this sort of father-son trip. And uh, the day before we were scheduled to take off, my dad had a big commercial walk behind. I've got a landscaping company, and he had this big walk behind in his garage, a big mower. Um, and he pinched it accidentally in a ditch, and it kind of bucked him off, and he fell and fractured his L4, L5 disc. And he, he called on his way to um, have it x-rayed, and I just went, oh my goodness, what are we, we going to do? Because he was thinking he was still going to go. And in the end, um, he, at 4 a.m., before we left our house at 5 a.m. to go catch a flight, um, he called me over, and he couldn't even get out of bed. And so Peter uh, is on West Coast time, and it was like 2 a.m. or whatever it was there, 1 a.m., and he was already driving to catch a flight in Sacramento. And so I got Peter on the phone, and we just went, what in the world are we going to do? This whole trip orients around this father-son sort of, you know, relationship and connection. And uh, Peter and I decided it would honor him most uh, to go ahead and go. And, uh, but it was a bittersweet trip. Everything that was exciting and wonderful and delightful, there was also this element of just sort of missing uh, dad, and he's, you know, turning 70. You never know how, long, how much time you have, right? And uh, so we, we, Peter and I, um, it was just, it turned into a very special time between Peter and I. He's eight years younger, and uh, we looked at each other and went, there's probably never going to be a time in our life that we spend this much uninterrupted time together. Um, he's getting ready to have um, a, a little... A, a, a little guy, a little boy. Um, so on Father's Day, we were, you know, sending my dad a few videos. I was celebrating our kids, and then Peter's getting ready to be a father. So it was a real special time, um, but definitely bittersweet. Um, and the Lord met us in it. So here we are. I'm glad to be back. We shipped about 100 pounds of fish back, and uh, it's in Peter's freezer and dad's freezer and a little bit in, in mine. So anyway, but pray for dad if you think about it. He is at home, and, and you know, he's in the recovery journey, but definitely going to be a process. So, I am glad to be back with you. Good morning. This is so good. Um, I love our little church buildings coming together, our, our church families coming together. Um, how many of you were here for Rob when Rob preached a couple weeks ago? Okay, so a good, good crew of you. How about for Jim? A few for Jim. Was that, were they good? They are, um, they are both dear friends of mine. Jim's one of our overseers here at Saltbox. They're both counselors, which somebody pointed out. I think Nathan pointed out. Michael, this is very unusual. You're gone for two weeks, and you have two counselors in uh, to preach. I'm like, well, they've helped me a lot, and I need a lot of help. So I, I figured they'd help everybody else. Um, but, you know, they actually are open if you need some individual counseling on any front. Um, they, are, they are both available. They're both full of the Spirit of God. Um, and uh, if, if they blessed you all like they've blessed me, then we'll have them back again. Sound good? All right. Very good. Um, we are moving towards uh, the book of Exodus. Michael, why would you pick Exodus? Exodus, Paul? Come on. Okay. So we are, we are moving towards the book of Exodus. Um, but in order to uh, enter the book of Exodus, the gateway to the book of Exodus is going to be Luke 9. So turn with me to Luke 9. Um, I'm a paper Bible fan. You'll hear, you'll hear me say this a lot, but I highlight and circle and put dates and whatever. When the Lord speaks to me, I like to circle it. And if I don't circle it and put a date, I walk away and I go, well, maybe that wasn't God. 
So I like to have my little paper Bible. I'd encourage you to do the same. If you're scrolling, open up your, your phone and, and scroll away. Um, well, we are going to start in Luke 9, and then we're going to use um, the book of Exodus, as I think we'll discover, um, as almost a uh, road map or um, a, a parallel sort of view of our Christian journey. Make sense? So uh, let's just let's kind of do an overview just really, really quickly. Um, if you remember, or, and maybe you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you're new to this whole Jesus thing, that's great. I'd welcome you in, and you can just jump in with us. Um, we, we center around Christ Jesus and center around the Word of God, and then what I believe that when we keep that in its preeminent spot, then everything sort of orients and orders in our life. Yeah? So um, in the book of Genesis... Uh, it ends with this guy named um, uh, Joseph, um, and Joseph uh, is sold uh, by his brothers into slavery, and he ends up in prison, and he gets promoted from prison to the head of, this is in Egypt, um, to the head of Pharaoh's um, entire nation, the nation of Egypt. And uh, in so doing, um, the people of Israel find themselves living in Egypt. And so they're living here, and they're, they're sort of multiplying, and then uh, they ultimately become enslaved, which we'll find out here in a few minutes. But, but the question sort of becomes for us as Christians or as believers or even as non-Christians or seekers is there comes a point in all of our lives where we're recognized we are owned by something other than God, where we don't have full freedom. And so when you come to that point and you recognize that you're owned by something and that it requires Jesus to buy your freedom or to set you free, so you get this parallel thing of coming out of slavery um, and moving towards a promised land, but you've got this vast land between. So you come out of where you were, so you're not who you were anymore, right? Uh, but you're not to where you're going, and so it's this, it's this, prom, or it's this desert journey from where you were um, to this journey and then into the promised land, and that's kind of what we're going to look at as we walk through this book. And I think it could be actually very powerful um, for many of us. But before we open it, um, let's start in Luke 9. So I'm going to start in Luke 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 28, and there's just one key thing I want to pull out here. Okay, Luke 9. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James. Now, who were Peter, John, and James? His disciples. And of his disciples, they were the closest three. They were like super tight with Jesus. So he took him with him, and he went up on a mountain to pray. Jesus is always going up on the mountains to pray. I love this about Jesus. And then as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men... Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure. Now work with me a minute. They spoke about his departure. What's, what do you think they're talking about? So you got Peter, James, and John. They've got, that actually says in a couple verses, they've gotten uh, sleepy. So they're, they're like tired over here to the side. I think that's verse... Um, they spoke about it. Peter and his companions uh, were very sleepy, verse 32. So we haven't even gotten there. But so Peter, James, and John are over to the side. They're very sleepy. Jesus is being, um, the spotlight is all of a sudden shown, uh, shined on him. He's absolutely illuminated. And you have Moses and Elijah, who they thought were dead. Are these guys dead? No, 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 no. They've just relocated, okay? So Moses and Elijah come out of eternity. Um, they come out of eternity and they show up and they begin talking to Jesus. And it literally says they're talking to Jesus about what? His departure. Okay, what's his departure? I heard crucifixion. Okay, something else. Ascension. Both right. His departure. 
Anybody, anybody know what that word is in Greek? I heard it. Somebody said it. <laughs> Did you say it, Buffy? Exodus! Okay, okay. So let's read it again, and let's read it with the Greek word. Okay. So two men, Moses and Elijah, some of my favorite characters in the Old Testament, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus while the disciples are sleepy. They spoke about his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. So what is his exodus? What is he going to Jerusalem? Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and the entire purpose of his going to Jerusalem is what? To die. For who? Me. And? All of us. So his exodus um, is uh, what he is about to pay. He is about to buy back through his death and then his resurrection and then his ascension. Um, so his exodus is him opening up the freedom for all people for all time to lead them from slavery through the desert into the promised land. So Jesus and Moses hang out. And I love the way uh, God does things. I love the way Jesus uh, does things because the two of them are conversing on the mountain. And I can only imagine Jesus standing there talking to Moses about what Moses was thinking and going through even as a human as he's going back to Egypt, which we're going to read all about this, to deliver the people from slavery and then lead them through this gnarly desert into the promised land. And so Jesus and Moses are hanging out and they're interacting and talking on this mountain about the Exodus. Now, why Exodus? Because Moses becomes, um, here's a seminary word, I guess, uh, a, a messianic prototype. Moses becomes a Jesus picture. Um, and then it, it, through Moses, we actually begin to see the person of Jesus. So, so you might even go, Michael, but why would we actually look um, at this book of Exodus? Well, let me throw out some words that actually come from um, the book of Exodus. How about covenant? Yeah? Is that a, is that a Christian word? A Jesus word? Yeah. That means relationship. It means a promised relationship, covenant relationship between us and God. Um, how about the blood of the lamb? Right out of Exodus. Um, how about Passover? Anybody know Passover? So Passover is still being celebrated today, even by uncompleted Jews, people who haven't fully given their life to Jesus. So they're still celebrating today um, their liberation from uh, slavery in Egypt. Um, how about leaven? Remember Jesus talking about leaven? Uh, how about deliverance or the promised land? So there's things that get set in this book of Exodus that become um, almost a pattern that you're going to see repeat through uh, not only the Old Testament, but you're going to see it into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the book of Acts. So a couple other thoughts here. Jesus was alive before he was born. What? Michael, are you saying Jesus was in Exodus? Shake your head. Yes, 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 I am. So there's a, there's a reflection of Jesus that I think we can find, and we're going to be able to see in all the events that happens here um, as Moses lead, uh, leads these people out of Egypt. So we'll attempt to look at this probably on a human level, um, a divine level, and then sort of on a Christian level. What's that mean uh, to us today? So Exodus actually means going out. Um, it's, it's an escape story. It's a book of um, leaving one place and going to another. So it starts with forced slavery. It starts with forced um, imprisonment. 
Uh, and, and then by the end of Exodus, you have God resting or tabernacling, I think as we'll see it called, um, among his people. So the, the people of God are back into the place of God, the presence of God, and the purpose of God. That's what the book of Exodus is really about. And that's what Jesus came to do. So for me, um, I think I feel the greatest peace, the greatest joy, the greatest confidence, the greatest fulfillment when I know that I am securely in the, um, the place of God, uh, the presence of God, and the purpose purpose of God. Does that make sense? I mean, that is, that is the place where I want to live. So one of the questions we'll ask here is, why did the uh, Hebrew people get out of it? What happened? Why were they enslaved? And we'll look at that this morning. Exodus uh, tells um, of a Redeemer God or Yahweh who, number one, saves, number two, accompanies, and number three, indwells. Saves, accompanies, indwells. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. First Jesus comes and he saves. And then what's he do with his disciples? Accompanies. And then the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells. So you begin to see this pattern way back in the book of Exodus. For I mean, God is the same and his character is immutable and unchangeable. And you can actually look and study the Old Testament and find Jesus in all the scriptures. And that's really what I want to do as we look at this book of Exodus. Um, so let's talk about some practicalities about the, um, just the idea of even what was the Exodus. Um, so the Exodus are over 2 million people, um, plus hundreds of thousands of animals and livestock who leave Egypt and go into the desert. So let's, let's dig on that just for a second here. Um, I looked up. How many tons of food a day do you think that many people needed? 900 tons of food per day. Uh, 2,400 tons of firewood per day, bare minimum, just to cook. Two million gallons of water per day, bare minimum, just for survival. A military general uh, put all this together. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, if if the, the people leaving Egypt traveled five across, so if, if five people stood side by side and went in a line, it would be a column that would be 230 miles long. That's like here to Boone. I mean, really. Uh, they would have left Egypt, and if they traveled five across, so what, one, two, three, four, like just the center of the stage here, it would be here to Boone. Like this is not a, like we tend to think, oh, this is this nice story. No, no, no. This is a supernatural story of an amazing God who came in and set a people free from forced slavery and led them through a desert. It'd take you 10 or 12 days just to walk from the beginning to the end of that line. Like, this isn't a miraculous, absolute story led by one guy, Moses. And one of the things we're going to look at next week is how does God train a man? Or how does God train a woman? How does he prepare a woman or man to lead? So the Israelite camp, when they would have camped, would have covered 500 square miles. That's like 23 miles by 23 miles. That's like um, Wrightsville, the, the, if you go all the way to Wrightsville Beach and then go all the way down to almost Curie Beach, not just Carolina Beach, but even past Curie Beach, and then you go all the way over past Leland and then all the way almost down to Southport. That is the Israelite camp. So I, what I want you to sort of get your head around is what happened here as God led these people out is absolutely extraordinary and miraculous. And then I think what he's doing is then inviting us into this same miraculous exodus, the same change um, in our own life into through the desert and into the promised land. So 
<clears throat> you know, it's, it's, there are Christians who would ignore or say God no longer does or can't do the miraculous. And you just look at the book of Exodus. It's all miracles. It is all the supernatural. The fundamental truth that I think you begin to pull from here is that God is a redeemer. He is the redeemer. So, Genesis. Let's, uh, we're, we're moving right in down to uh, Exodus 1. Uh, Genesis begins where? Garden. Somebody said it. That's exactly right. Genesis, the book of Genesis begins in a garden. Anybody know where the book of Genesis ends? Somebody read the last verse there. In a coffin. So the story of Genesis is the story of how humans got lost, how we got stuck into sin. It begins in a garden, walking with God in the cool of the day, this intimate, intense relationship, and it ends with Joseph in a coffin. And so then Exodus begins this story of how we go then from the coffin back to the promised land, back to where God, I think, really wants us to be planted. So as we begin to read here... um, Let's just start, but I I think that the key is going to be that God wants to move us back to the place of his presence, back to the place of his purpose, um, and and back to the the place um, where he really wants us to be. So let's let's begin to read here, and uh, we'll, we'll jump in. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, numbered 70 in all, and Joseph, that was the son who was sold, was already in Egypt. Now, have you ever, uh, anybody ever read James? Paul, you're studying it right now, I think. Remember what the first verse of James says? I'm really putting you on the spot there. If you don't remember, I got it right here. You know the second one. The second one's the one we all know. So James 1, 1 literally says, uh, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. These are the guys we just read about. These are the 12 tribes. Now, who are the 12 tribes today? Us, Christians, scattered among the nations. So as we start reading this, you can immediately begin to um, already fit into the story of God. All right, verse, uh, verse 6 Um, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power. Now remember, to the old Pharaoh, Joseph was like the Savior. Joseph uh, was the one he had, the Pharaoh had this dream that there was going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so uh, Joseph translated this dream for him. And then Joseph spent seven years building up these huge grain storehouses. And Egypt became the epicenter of life during these seven years of famine. So the reason even Joseph's brothers had to journey um, to Egypt during this famine was because they ran out of food. So they had to make this long journey so they could find food. So, so Joseph um, was loved and revered by Pharaoh, but when Pharaoh dies and a new king comes to power, um, to whom Joseph meant nothing, he said, look, uh, he said to his people, these Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." 
Verse 11, this is so important. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. We'll come back to verse 12 in just a minute. All right, now, my question is, as I'm reading this, is why were the people uh, of God in Egypt so long? Anybody remember how long the famine was? Seven years. Somebody's going to pull it out of that Bible knowledge. Come on. The famine that Joseph was set up, there was seven um, lean, or there were seven years of plenty, and then seven lean years. Now, why is it that the Israelites, uh, the 70 of them, came to Egypt and stayed? Now, go here with me a little bit. How long should they have probably stayed? They came at year two. So, how long should they have probably stayed? Five. Come on, Carl, hold that up. Five. Now, what happens when we get comfortable? What happens when we start, oh man, this is pretty good. Life is easy here. I'm just going to stay in. Hang out. So life all of a sudden becomes pretty good. In fact, if you go back to the end of Genesis 50, Joseph actually goes back and he buries his father, but then it says he goes back to Egypt. And I can't prove this fully theologically. I can't take you through, you know, fully line by line, but I would propose to you that the people of God disobeyed God and stayed too long. In other words, Joseph ends up in a coffin embalmed, and he is really meant to be taken back and buried with his dad in Canaan in the promised land, and yet he chooses, and he chose, and his descendants chose to stay. Now, could they have left at that point? Packed up and moved on, yes. Did they need a deliverer at that point? All they had to do was follow God back home. And yet, I think one of the things that happens to each of us as believers is when we get in a spot that is pretty good, we somehow lose the ability to hear God that it's time to move. Isn't that interesting? So someone came up to me um, before the service and was actually talking about, um, I think it was Debbie. Debbie, was that you? Was talking about grandson. And the, and the, the grandson said, oh, wow, y'all got promoted from your cafeteria. It's about our new building. We used to meet at Hoggard High School. <laughs> Y'all got promoted to this new building. You're, not, you're no longer in the kitchen. God moved us. But here's the thing. If we get comfortable where we are, we can actually miss the move of God. Just because God called you or said to be somewhere doesn't mean you're necessarily there forever. Yeah? So the question then becomes, how dependent are we, how inclined are the ears of our hearts to actually um, listen to him? So I would propose to you that uh, when, when Joseph and his descendants died, I think they should have stayed there five, six years and then packed up and gone home. But they stayed too long. And they stayed too long, and now what happens? Now we're enslaved. Now we're enslaved. This Pharaoh comes into power who no longer knows uh, Joseph, and he enslaves the people. I would actually propose to you that part of God's mercy is when he allows um, the prodigal to go live in the far country. Part of his mercy is that he allows people who are not um, following him, listening to him, obeying him, to become enslaved. So I think in, in and through all of this, you're, you're waiting and watching. God is waiting and watching for his people to um, turn their eyes back towards him. That make sense? So what you, what you have here is, is a group of people um, who have gotten comfortable, and the moment you get prosperous and comfortable, it becomes so dangerous that we take our eyes off Jesus, that we stop listening to him, we stop following him, we stop seeking him. 
Verse 12, this is fascinating to me though, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Biblical principle there, uh, if, if you want, you know, biblical principle number one, it's uh, don't stay too long. Don't stay too long. When God says move, you move. When God says pack up and go, you go. Spiritual principle number two you can pull from this is when the people of God are oppressed, they multiply. There's a lot of people who are going, oh, the church is oppressed right now in America or things are happening. I'm going, great. Maybe we're going to wake up in our faith. Maybe we're going to renew that really heartfelt surrender before King Jesus. Maybe it's going to become more about him than about our American dream. Maybe that as things do get a little bit difficult and things are shaken up, all of a sudden what happens is the, the gospel and, and, and the good news of Jesus actually multiplies and spreads. That's actually good news. So you can look... You can look at difficult circumstances and all of a sudden you flip them on your head and you go, oh my goodness, we could be sitting on the greatest cusp of opportunity that we've ever seen, at least in my lifetime, probably in our parents' lifetime. Because what happens is when things get a little bit difficult, the people are enslaved, they stay too long, things get challenging, all of a sudden we begin to look to who? God. When things are good and things are easy and everything's coasting, are we paying attention to what God's doing? God who? What? So you have 400 years of silence between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And I think what's happening in that time is God is allowing his people in his sovereign justice and mercy to be enslaved. And he is waiting for his people to look back to him. He is waiting for his people to reorient their hearts and reorient their lives. <clears throat> Verse 13, um, they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter and harsh. Um, they labored with brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. Uh, and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians um, used them ruthlessly. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shipra and Pua. This is fascinating to me that this is even in this chapter. I'm like, why did, he, why did they even put this in there? But, but it's in here. Uh, the the uh, Hebrew midwives, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, uh, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Okay, so what's happening here? So the, the king of um, Egypt, so Pharaoh, is concerned that uh, these Israelites are just growing and multiplying and spreading. So he's going to say, exterminate the boys. Anytime a boy is born, kill him. Kill him. Put him to death. And I can only assume that he thought that he could use the women the way he wanted, and he's going to let them live. But we don't want any boys, so kill all the boys is what he says. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Interesting. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> do you think they were telling the truth? I have no way of knowing. But here is what's fascinating to me. Look, look at verse 20. This is fascinating. God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, so they feared God instead of who? Pharaoh. That's exactly right. He gave them uh, families of their own. I actually read that, and I wondered, did the midwives lie? But God didn't measure the lie. 
if they did. I don't know if they did. What he measured was their... I mean, you get a spiritual principle here that I love about King Jesus is he's always looking at the motives of the heart, always looking at the heart. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, uh, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So both um, Joseph um, and Moses become sort of messianic prototypes, pictures of King Jesus. Um, Pharaoh here is going to become a picture of who? Satan. Satan. We have an enemy. And the enemy is the ruler of this world. That's right. Now, will he always be? No. Read the end of the book. King Jesus will come back and overthrow him. But right now, is he? Yes. So Pharaoh, in this whole book, as we go through it, becomes a picture of Satan. What's Satan want for you? To enslave you. He wants to use you. He wants you to die. That's right, spiritually and otherwise. Moses becomes a picture of who? Jesus. That's right. Uh, Egypt, what do you think Egypt's a picture of? Yeah? I'm going to take it a step further. Do you like this? We're small enough that I can interact. What does Egypt become a picture of as we look through this? Somebody said it. Enslavement? Sin? I heard somebody say sin. I think Egypt becomes a picture of sin because when it was time to go home, what did the people do? Stayed. We don't want you, God. We don't want your way. We're going to stay. We're going to do it our way. So Egypt becomes a picture of sin. Now, what's Canaan become a picture of? Keep going. That's right but I think it's more. Canaan becomes a picture of... So Canaan is the promised land. Canaan is where... So God said to Moses, lead the people out. And Moses said, where am I going to take them? And God said, the promised land. How am I going to get there? Through the desert. Okay, so what's Canaan become a picture of? Salvation. I think salvation. I think it's also a uh, way to go, Karen. I see Joyce elbowing you. Um, <laughs> Canaan is definitely a picture of salvation. Now, what's the desert? So you've got this space of time between, um, and even those two million people, that trip should have only taken them like two, three weeks. Anybody know how long it took them? 40 years! Oh, Lord Jesus, don't let me be like the Israelites and take that long to get where you've called me to go. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. Okay, so what's the desert? Yeah, it's the Jesus journey. It's where we are in our journey towards him. So here's what I want us to do as we begin to look through this, and there's, there's some uh, cumbersome chunks in this whole book that we'll take sort of together. We won't read every word of it, but we'll, we'll sort of look through. And I am confident that if you can begin to find yourself in this story, that what you will begin to also do is go, oh my goodness, where am I still in? Sin, where am I still enslaved? Where am I still stuck? Or where have I been freed from sin and freed from the past, but I'm still living in the desert and I haven't made it into the full freedom of the promised land. I haven't fully embraced my freedom in Christ. I haven't fully gotten to where he's called me to get. And the idea is that we have a, as a church would be a group of people who not only leave Egypt, come to Jesus, come to salvation as we're leaving. We journey through kind of healing all, all of the hangups and things from our past in, the, in this desert season. And then we enter into to the promised land as a people. Because I don't know about you, but I don't love camping in the desert. I certainly don't love being enslaved in Egypt. Where I want to live is in the promised land. And I think that's where Jesus wants each of us to live.
Next week, we're going to take a look at the birth of Moses. And it's a fascinating study because it's a, it's a study of um, how does God train a person when God wants to use a person. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, read ahead if you want because it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I want to make one, one more parallel here as we go into communion. When Jesus was born... Anybody remember who ruled Judea? Herod. Okay, and what did Herod do? Killed the babies. That's right. Any, anybody under two, he killed. Now, when um, Pharaoh gave the order, what's he saying to do? When the deliverer comes, when the deliverer comes, Moses, who's a Jesus prototype, and then Jesus, they, they uh, went after the kids to cut off the deliverer, to cut off the Savior. <clears throat> there is something so powerful here if we can get it as a church because Jesus um, came to set you free and to save. And the enemy wants everything he can do to cut off and keep you stuck in sin, stuck in lifeless death, stuck in slavery, and he wants to lead us into the promised land. So as we celebrate communion this morning, what I would love you to be mindful of is Jesus is this God who wants to not just save you. A lot of us think that, even precognitively. He just wants to save me. He wants to accompany you, and then more than that, he wants to infill you. And I don't know where you are on that process, but I want to invite you to take that next step. You may be in the room this morning and go, Michael, I don't even know this Jesus. You can start today. You may be in the room and go, I think I've a, he's accompanied me or I've accompanied him, but I've never been fully infilled. You can take that step today. What church is about is a group of people coming together and, and walking in life beside one another as we, are, as we each take steps to be more filled with his presence and purpose. Yeah? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his 12 disciples. It was right after he was transfigured on that mountain. But he took a loaf of bread, and he sat with them, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Every time you do this, Every time you break bread, every time you eat, remember my broken body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took wine. We have juice this morning, but he took wine. And he poured it into a glass, and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And I want to suggest to each of you this morning that when we come to the communion table, we don't come um, beating ourselves up or living under shame or living under regret. No, 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 no. We come remembering what Jesus did on that cross, becoming the bread of life, becoming the blood of life, becoming the new covenant by which we can all live and partake, moving from slavery through the desert into the promised land. God wants to give you hope, purpose, and life.